Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here on the channel. Today we are talking with Mindy Freed about her new book, Caring for Red, A Daughter's Memoir. So thanks again for being with us here today. Please go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, So um, I am a sociologist. Uh, Actually, I would call myself an applied sociologist. Uh, I have been running a small consulting group called ARPA Consulting Partners for about 20 years now. And uh, what this means is that I take my uh, theoretical and kind of research skills and bring them into the world, um, working uh, mainly with nonprofit organizations as well as foundations to help them uh, sort of understand how their programs are working and make decisions about improving uh, their organizations. Um, and then uh, sort of on the quote-unquote side, I also produce music and art festivals, um, which I've been doing for the past four years. So that's a another way of applying my sociological eye, I guess you could say. Great. Well, thank you again for being here today. So first, we'll just start off by having you talk about how this book came about for you. Sure. Um, so uh, my father, um, who died four days shy of 98, uh, was very um, active and engaged person as an older person. Uh, but uh, in the last year of his life, he as he started going downhill, um, I was I had been writing a blog called Mindy's Muses and I'd started a, you know about 3 years prior to that and so when he he was struggling with his own health um I started just processing some of that and bringing kind of a sociological eye to this personal experience. Um, so I wrote about engaged aging because he was sort of a, a, a exemplar for that. Uh, I wrote about living and assisted living because he eventually did <clears throat> move into um, an institution facility. Um, and in a way, uh, writing these blog posts was uh, sort of a it was a, a method for me to kind of process the grief, process the loss. And um, it, when he finally died, I my thought was that I would just kind of piece all those blog posts together and create a book. Um, that was the thought I had. I also, um, at the time when I was, was caring for him, um, I was teaching a sociology of aging class at Brandeis University. And um, he actually died after the first month into the class. And it, what I I discovered was that this process of talking about it openly about the, about loss and aging and death and so on was really, um, universal and important for my students. And so, you know, the, it's, it's planted this notion that, um, this material actually was, went beyond, uh, me and my personal story, but was really more of a universal story. So, um, I took a, a, a one-day workshop at a, a. I'm based in Boston. It was a, a local writing uh, program called Grub Street. Um, so it was a one-day memoir workshop, and uh, you know, got, got some some insights about 
uh, writing and, and realized, I mean, I had, I was a writer. I'd been writing for quite a while, but realized that, that my storytelling style was to try and, um, bring this, a sociological eye, bring a kind of a, a, a more universal, uh, sociological perspective to something, stuff that I was experiencing. And so I just, uh, applied that and decided to see if I could tell a story, um, my story and, and that in, doing that, um, that I had to think more carefully about uh, the arc of the story. It wasn't just, you know, vignettes as I had been kind of capturing in blog posts, but it was actually, you know, telling a a story of transformation. And in this case, it was my personal transformation uh, from somebody who, you know, didn't know if she could actually take, you know, take on this huge task uh, to, to really discovering that I had the the power and the, the capacity to be a real advocate for my dad and to help to kind of usher him into um, this last chapter of his life. And, and that's kind of what the book then became. So we'll go ahead and get right into it. Um, here in chapter one, you start off with uh, the last year of your father's life, pretty much. Um, and the word that I really focused on when I was reading this for these first couple of pages is the word dignity. And so I was wondering how you could really set the stage for readers here about what you see as the big issues at the end of your father's life. Well, I think one of the things that's that's really striking is, you know, as 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 we age, um, you know, I mean, there's a lot of theories about um, the extent to which people um, maintain engagement in their lives. And, you know, certainly health is, can be a prohibitive factor, but um, it's pretty clear that the, the more we can stay engaged in our lives, the the better we are, you know, m- mentally, physically, and so on. And um, as, you know, what I, I discovered is, is sort of the challenges of helping my dad, as a lot of people, a lot of other caregivers do, um, maintain a sense of his own identity, his own, uh, you know, connection to the world. And so, you know, he had been, I mean, I guess I would back up just a little bit and say that um, he had been a labor organizer during the 40s and 50s and um, was subpoenaed by, by the House on american Activities Committee during the 50s and again in the 60s. So this is part of what people refer to as the McCarthy era, when thousands of people were um, called to testify um, about their political uh, ideology. And they were asked this now infamous question, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Uh, and in this case, you know, my father um, actually challenged the the right of the committee to exist. He also used the First Amendment, free speech amendment, and refused to answer questions in general. Um, so, uh, and throughout his life, you know, because of this, he was um, he lost his job. He was ostracized, as we all were as a f- family members, from uh, f- various friends and family. Um, and kind of struggled, but he also was a fighter. And uh, eventually, through my childhood, sold life insurance uh, for a Canadian company, which is the only place where he could find work. Um, eventually, he started writing plays about his experiences, um, started acting, and ultimately went back to school and got a degree in English and became an English professor in the final chapter of his life. And so, you know, here's somebody who had a very full, active life, really stuck up for what he believed in. Um, 
And and yet, as people age, they they can lose a sense of their identity. Um, you know, particularly you know, you know, we had made a decision to move him into. Uh, assisted living facility and institution, um, you know, because he was no longer able to, he had a lot of medical issues and, uh, you know, there were a lot of things going on where he, you know, a lot, I can talk about it later, but, you know, did, you know, chose to not leave uh, his hometown. And so, you know, we really saw it as our, uh, our goal. And I would say our meaning my sister and I, because she and I were in this together to, help him maintain a sense of himself to, uh, you know, really maintain his, his dignity as somebody who had a full and meaningful life. Um, you know, even as parts of that life were, were not active any longer. And, and I think just more universally, it's, you know, it, I think is often the work of caregivers to, you know, to, to ensure that people, uh, live their final days feeling a sense of dignity and, um, you know, connection to who they were and hold on to parts of that that they can, you know, still be a part of. Also here in the first chapter, you have this phrase that um, says that you're a caregiver by choice, not by obligation. And one of the things that I personally study is how the aging population is going to put pressure on families, especially spouses and adult children, to care for um, older family members. And so I was wondering what you really saw as your role with your father and even in balancing with your sister. Um, sorry, I, we got cut out for a second. Could you just that last bit? You said something about the role. Yeah. So the the what you saw is your role as a caregiver with your father, and then you know in balancing with your sister. Yeah, sure. Um, so my sister, my first of all, my father was living in Buffalo, New York, which was my you know original <laughs> hometown uh, that I left when I was around seventeen, never to return. Um, my sister was living in Pittsburgh. I live in Boston, and both of us uh, really took on the a commitment to uh, help him as much as we could. Um, and in this case. You know, she and I, she's older than me. Um, we made a decision. I mean, she, because she was older, she was the financial executor uh, for the family, for him. And that left kind of everything um, up for grabs. Uh, you know, I have found in talking with many people since this book has come out um, that oftentimes sibling relationships can be tense or challenging. And uh, I just was quite lucky that my sister was very happy to uh, share the job of caregiving and probably was relieved because there's so much involved in caring for uh, an elder parent. Um, so our roles kind of broke down and somewhat organically. Um, you know, she, she, as I said, she dealt with finances. Um, both of us visited every weekend. Some, one of us was there. So it generally was uh, that we, we took uh, turns. So we went on alternate weekends. She drove, I flew, um, and basically hung out with our dad for about three days. Um, this is, again, he was in assisted living at this point. So we knew that he was being cared for and watched. And um, so the, the job of a caregiver is often to monitor the quality of care in a facility. And uh, so in doing that, I took that on um, 
wholeheartedly, um, you know, really wanted to get to know all the people who were <clears throat> involved in my father's care, um, everything, you know, everything from the nurses, the social workers, the personal care attendants, and so on. And just to, you know, let them know um, that we were involved and um, in some ways that we were kind of watching. Uh, and, you know, well, that sounds, I mean, I, I do feel that the facility that he was in, which we call Harmony Village, I call Harmony Village, was a quality facility. I, I think that in any any institution, there, you know, there's a lot of directions that um, staff are being pulled in. And so it is important and helpful to keep a watchful eye. And I, I, I knew that from personal experience and also from some of the literature that I had read about caregiving and aging. So, um, so, so there was that. There was uh, also because my we were trying very hard to keep my dad connected to the world outside of that sheltered world of the institution. Uh, I was in charge of his social life in a way. Um, you know, he had friends from his theater world, from his political activist world, from his teaching world. Um, and so I stayed in touch with people. I, I scheduled people to come visit. I scheduled people to, um, take him uh, out for dinner or to see various plays until he kind of lost his capacity to, to focus. But um, there was that. Um, there were times that he would go into a hospital because there would be a crisis. I would fly in and, and kind of, uh, you know, focus on ensuring that the care was good. And often that when he was in a hospital often required much more intensive monitoring Um that was my experience. Uh, and, you know, just to make sure that his medications were okay, that he was seeing, uh, getting proper medical care from, from people. And, you know, the list kind of goes on. But, um, you know, again, my sister and I really did, uh, we stayed in touch on a, a, a regular basis, made sure that we were uh, coordinating anything that we were doing to ensure that he would have, uh, you know, high quality of care all around. So you sort of referenced this a little bit earlier, but I really sort of want to talk about how your father was a labor organizer um, and how this historical period basically in America, the McCarthyism um, era, really affected your father, but also you and the relationships of those around you, like your mother. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us some more about that and how you really see the historical period in which your father experienced this really affecting him throughout his life and then at the end of his life as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so my father came from a working class Jewish, Jewish background. And uh, one of the jobs he had early on as a young man in his 20s was um, working at a, uh, a chemical factory, a DuPont chemical factory. And, um, you know, he tells stories about um, taking naps on the edge of the vat. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, I think that, you know, he w was very much, um, you know, he, he lived, he was, came from a family of nine kids. He was, he had one year of college as, uh, on a football scholarship. He apparently wasn't good enough to, uh, get brought back. And so, you know, he had to make a living. And so, you know, working in a factory, I think was an eye opener for him. Um, he was also at the time struggling to become an actor. He went to New York City um, 
and worked with the Federal Working Theater, which uh, was kind of a progressive theater community. It was federally funded at the time. <clears throat> and, you know, his, the way he tells the story, he, he could have kind of made it as an actor. But in fact, um, you know, he at that he had started doing some organizing work and um, that's what he was drawn to. So he came back to Buffalo, um, was working for the United Electrical Workers. Um, and this period of time, the McCarthy era was, uh, you know, really a dark era in our country. Uh, say, you know, some something that I, I fear we're sort of heading towards today. But um, there was a, you know, this is right after it's kind of around the Cold War, and there was a real fear that communists were going to take over uh, this country, and um, and so uh, the Senator Joe McCarthy um, set up hearings all over the country, and the House version of that uh, was the uh, HUAC or the uh, House on American Activities Committee, and thousands of people were called to testify, as I said earlier, um, including, you know, sort of the most famous, which was the Hollywood 10, you know, uh, maybe you've heard of that. But then there were uh, people also from the State Department, from the military, folks from just, you know, everyday life, including folks who were uh, labor organizers were called to testify. And they were asked to name the names of other people. And the, the result of this uh, this period was was fairly devastating. Um, if you were uh, considered to be a communist, uh, chances are you would lose your job. Some people got jailed. Uh, the, you know, it it kind of permeated the culture, this frenzy and fear that the communists were taking over. Uh, and uh, the way it played out for us personally, um, my mother's family owned a kind of fancy. A restaurant called the Park Lane in Buffalo. And <clears throat> when my dad um, was subpoenaed to testify uh, in front of the House on American Activities Committee, she was given a choice to either leave the restaurant, essentially get kicked out, uh, or leave him. And so she chose to stay with him and she did get thrown out of the restaurant for about a year or so. And, um, you know, the way it played out for my sister and I, uh, the first time my dad was subpoenaed, she was a, a, a teenager and she was ostracized from family, from friends and so on. And, and then 10 years later, my dad was subpoenaed again. And, and I then experienced a similar thing where, um, my friendship circle all of a sudden started to reject me. So as a teenager, I pretty much internalized that, you know, what is, what does it mean when all your friends don't want to be around you? I just assumed that there was something wrong with me. And, you know, it was, um, I was terrified of losing my friends and, and, and then I did. Um, but you know, with my father's support and advice, I actually reached out to a different crowd, um, and I ended up like entirely shifting my crowd of friends uh, in one year. Um, and the kids who were open to me were kids who came from working class backgrounds, um, mostly sort of Polish and, and Italian immigrant uh, sort of second generation kids. Um, and, you know, that was kind of how, how I uh, made it work. But, um, you know, I, I, I have since uh, that time met 
a lot of, uh, you know, now adults, but um, people who as children experienced a very similar thing. And there's, there's actually a name for this, red diaper babies. And I've gone to a couple of red diaper baby conferences at a, uh, a retreat center in New Hampshire called World Fellowship Center and met a lot of other folks who went through the same thing. Um, maybe a huge difference, I'd say, was that uh, in my family, um, my my parents weren't connected to a larger network of uh, folks who with who were like minded, and uh, uh, unlike these other uh, folks who I met, these other red diaper babies who went to you know commie uh, summer camp, um, you know met C- Pete Seeger when they were kids, and uh, you know pretty much had a, a social network of other people who were going through the same thing. So, you know, it was a, a I think a tough period um, to experience as a, as a teenager. Um, and, you know, something that I, I've spent, you know, many years trying to kind of process and make sense of. So then, um, as you mentioned earlier, and then in, in the book, your dad eventually moves into assisted um, living, which you reference as Harmony Village in the book. But I thought what was interesting about this discussion is how public or personal space really becomes a public space and the tie to loss of power and control almost of your own personal space. And even you had your own personal experience where you had stayed overnight and were woken up in the middle of the night. And that really seemed to change the way you felt about um, those kind of places. So I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate more on that transition for your father. Um, sure. Uh, you know, I think, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, my, my father was somebody who really worked through his entire life on social justice issues and was very well aware of, you know, the, the, the phenomenon of hierarchy within the workplace. And, you know, here he was as somebody who had that kind of social consciousness or political consciousness living in a, uh, an institution, um, which, you know, as, as much as one can try and humanize an institution, you know, there were 200 people living there and there was a level of regimentation that, um, you know, made it possible to run the place. So, you know, the whole, the mealtime experience was regimented in, you know, in many, many ways, um, you know, the, the, the times that people got their medications or the times that activities were held, you know, there's, there was a, a level of, of regimentation that is just kind of comes along with institutional life. Um, you know, that said, um, there was a lot of, we selected this place because there seemed to be a lot of caring people who, uh, you know, weren't, um, looking at the residents as, uh, numbers, but, you know, treated them with some, some caring, uh, you know, at the same time, I guess what you were referring to is, um, right after my dad moved into Harmony Village, which is what I called the place, um, he had a health crisis and had to go into the hospital. And so I decided as, uh, you know, as I decided to move into his, his apartment is a very teeny little place, essentially a room in a, a, a little sitting space. And, um, I, I guess, you know, a couple things were going through my head. One is that, you know, here I was a social scientist and here was an opportunity to do some quote unquote ethnographic research that I could actually, uh, you know, live in his place and feel what it was really like in some ways, hopefully to kind of normalize 
the experience, you know, because of course there's some guilt that I think everybody feels when they moved a parent into an institution. So I just wanted, I think in some ways understand what that was like, but also observe it. And so uh, on the first night, you know, I'd fallen asleep and um, was woken up abruptly by uh, one of the workers who's shining a flashlight in my eyes. And um, I kind of sat up abruptly and was really shocked because uh, I had no, you know, I was disoriented. I didn't know who she was and what was going on. And um, then, you know, she, 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 what she said was, oh, you're the daughter. Um, I realized later on that my dad was on bed check and that all the doors were open and that, you know, as much as this feels like a, um, you know, homey uh, environment to, to the degree an institution can, you know, it really is uh, an institution in which personal space really is public space. And um, my father was subject to bed checks, probably a good thing because of his age and vulnerability. But it was just a reminder that, um, you know, th that this is not a hotel, <laughs> uh, that this is actually, uh, you know, a, an institution where people are, are observing and making sure that everybody's okay, which also involves a certain level of in invasive behavior. And I think that, that that to me was a bit of a wake-up call, um, you know, just reminding me of, you know, what exactly uh, this place was in all its good and not so good ways. Um, so in chapter three, one of the things that I picked up on um, was this uh, discussion of later life disabilities and adapt adaptation. And so I was wondering if you could sort of elaborate on the ways that that sort of affected your father and the ways that he needed to adapt as he became more and more disabled. Uh, sure. Um well, my father had been an athlete as a young man, and he continued to be very active into his older years. And um, but and yet he was quite lucky that he was still able to um, be mobile. You know, well into his nineties, he actually was still performing. He did a a one person show, which was an, a biographical autobiographical piece um, at a pretty well-known theater in Buffalo uh, when he was in his 90s. Pretty remarkable in a way. But he did that performance after he had had hip surgery, which was elective. Not sure it was such a great idea uh, in retrospect. Um, but, you know, it's it's obviously it's quite common as we age. We, we, we started having these little infractions as, you know, perhaps, uh, you know, small injuries or eye issues or some people struggle with cognitive issues and it's just quite common. So, you know, how does, how does one adapt to that? I, I, you know, I think that my father's theory was, you know, just keep chugging on. Um, so he did continue to perform. He, he did continue to stay involved and go out and do stuff. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't think everybody's able to do that. Uh, you know, I guess th the best advice is to do as much as you can do. And when you can't do it outside to, uh, bring the outside in and, and in a way that is what we did that, um, he had been, you know, still going out to see theater and, and so on. And, uh, but, somehow I think cognitively wasn't, uh, he just wasn't following storylines as well as he had as even just a, you know, in his earlier nineties. And, um, so, you know, my sister and I as caregivers kind of shifted, you know, rather than dragging him out to plays, uh, we 
talked with his friends and there's actually a wonderful group of his theater friends that started visiting him every Monday and they call themselves Mondays with Manny, which was kind of a takeoff on Tuesdays with Maury. Um, and I mean, ironically, my dad had actually played Maury in the play um, and Maury had been somebody who was a Brandeis professor. Um, I, that's where I got my doctorate. And so, you know, he had been in touch with people who knew Maury and took care of him. And so he had this special connection to the whole Tuesdays with Maury story. But there is, here's this wonderful crew of theater folks who decided that they were going to every week come visit him. And he would uh, sit there sometimes more or less engaged, but um, was very much a part of that experience. So, you know, we we tried to support, uh, my sister and I, that is, tried to support maintaining his engagement with friends, despite physical and kind of, I don't know, physical disabilities and just, you know, sort of the, the, the scourges of, of old age. Um. So, Towards the end of the book, you talk about some of the activities that your father was involved in. And one of the things that I personally really liked was your discussion of the weights class with Lorna. Um, and th throughout the book, um, throughout the book, you sort of reference a few theories. So continuity theory, um, activity theory. So these ideas that engagement is important and that adult development is a continual process. Um, also sort of like Harry Moody's work that you mentioned. So making meaning as a lifelong endeavor. So I was sort of wondering if you could talk more about how you saw that happening with your father. Sure, sure. Um, well, so, you know, as you're, as you're referring to activities theory, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's a number of theories uh, in the world of in the sociology world of aging, um, it, one of which is activities theory. I mean, I think, and, which was kind of a response to disengagement theory. So initially, I think it was thought that all people, when they get old, just disengage with life. And then um, there was more of a recognition that no, uh, if people stay engaged with their lives, they can, they, they kind of, you know, can kind of stay more vibrant and, and uh, connected to people. And so I think my father was, you know, somebody who was engaged with life pretty <laughs> deeply and had multiple kind of concentric circles of connections, uh, a lot of networks. And uh, so the way that played out uh, in his, in the time that he lived at Harmony Village uh, was, um, you know, in a few ways. One is that, you know, he was an absolute snob and thought that everybody was just obsessed with bingo. And so... <laughs> You know, he was somebody who thought of himself, I think, as uh, an artist and an intellectual, and he didn't find kindred spirits in that way um, at Harmony Village. Or maybe he just didn't have the patience to find out about people to discover folks that he could connect to. Um, so in that sense, you know, it, it, Harmony Village did not provide that intellectual stimulation to him. Um, and that's why we tried to bring stuff in, you know, whether it was my sister or I reading to him, uh, talking about politics with him, um, you know, organizing to bring friends in who would just have very active and engaged conversations about what was going on with the arts or, you know, latest budget cuts or, uh, you know, whatever political snafu was going on. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that's something that, um, you know, we, we tried to support. Um, we actually just reminded me that there was a, um, 
uh, some folks from a particular theater that wanted to interview him. And so um, I facilitated that process in which um, somebody came with a camera and um, I, I actually asked my dad lots of questions, but he, you know, he got to talk about his life and somehow, like a lot of older people I've discovered, uh, you know, if you talking about older stuff kind of uh, turned him on, you know, almost like his brain just kind of shot back on and he was able to talk in a very lucid way about, um, you know, labor struggles that he was involved in or theater that he did or whatever. So that was kind of cool. Um, you know, the, the waste class was a funny thing. This woman who, who I called Lorna, uh, who was the activities director and she taught this waste class that was, you know, 90%, uh, pushing a balloon around. So something that was weightless, but you know, my dad who had been an athlete all his life was committed to that weight class. And he, he did that weight class um, probably up to the day he died, just about. That uh, was, you know, or if he didn't go, he would feel guilty. It was something that was just a part of who he was. Um, so, you know, we, we worked really hard, I think my sister and I, to uh, help him stay involved and to stay active to the extent that he could. Um, and then, you know, when you're 90, almost 98 years old, your body is tired. <laughs> maybe, maybe some people are less tired than him, but you know, he, he was also kind of tired. So he, he also had to kind of, uh, rest a lot and regain his energy. And, uh, you know, that was very much a part of his daily life as well. So um, because you're a social scientist, I really appreciated um, you sort of tying things together for the reader throughout the book. And one of the um, things that you bring up is your own personal work um, in sociology about uh, parental leave policy. And you really sort of highlight how um, caregiving is going to become a complex issue for workers, especially at, at least, you know, in the United States, there's very few policies that support those workers. So I was wondering if you could sort of talk about that issue as well. Sure. Uh, well, I, I spent many years, uh, when, when I first moved to Boston, I I worked for um, a senator who, a progressive senator who, <clears throat> um, you know, was kind of at the time, this is early 80s, bold enough to push for universal health care and universal child care. And the issue that I ended up getting quite involved in was uh, early childhood policy. Um, from a mul multiple perspectives. I worked on that issue um, from inside the legislature to I, I was a lobbyist. Um, I was uh, uh, ran programs that were funded by the federal government, and then I ended up doing research on child care workers and, um, and, and also worked in you know, around issue of employer supported childcare. And, you know, it was very clear as I, especially as I started looking at the, the issue around um, child care policy from a federal perspective and a, uh, an employer perspective was that there really wasn't uh, enough funding and there wasn't adequate policy to support high quality, accessible, affordable, uh, child care. And that some employers were stepping up to the plate, because they saw it as a business issue. Um, and so, you know, sort of on the uh, long end of the spectrum, some were actually building or somehow building childcare centers or, or, or contracting to run childcare centers for their employees. And on the sort of easy access <laughs> end of the spectrum, they were providing resource and referral information to employ employees who could go out and find services elsewhere. Uh, it seems like, you know, childcare was the issue that initially got 
tagged um, by employers, but that as the the workforce um, aged, so did the policy issues that were um, being addressed, and uh, the issue of elder care. Uh, became more prominent uh, within the employer sector. Um, you know, the question being, you know, what can employers do essentially to um, not lose productivity of their workers by providing some kind of supports to workers around elder care needs? And some of the research showed that the the best the best thing they could do is provide some flexibility in the workplace. And um, I actually ran a national study on uh, flexible work policies um, in major corporations like Bristol Myers Squibb and Motorola, um, Amway, Allied Signal. And, uh, you know, we looked at the the importance of flexibility in the workplace. Um, but the, the problem is that, you know, while at this point, actually, there is a, a, a telecommuting policy for uh, for DC, and there are some states that have looked at flexible work policies, and there are some states that have you know, paid leave policies, you know, by and large, family policy is not, uh, has a long way to go. And, and social policy in relation to elder care is, is really is inadequate. And I think at the moment, given the current political landscape is probably going to be under the gun. You know, there's a, a push by Paul Ryan and other folks to uh, make the, the retirement age later, um, you know, while there are some workers, maybe knowledge workers who might welcome that. Uh, there are others, uh, particularly people who do, uh, you know, any kind of manual labor that, you know, would not welcome that at all. Um, you know, it, it we, we have a, a Medicare policy that is under, um, at the moment, uh, you know, and Medicaid policy, I would add, that are under the gun that, you know, we... Um, you know, they're inadequate. Uh, you know, assisted living, uh, for example, is is not reimbursed in most states by Medicare, whereas nursing homes are. And so, you know, this raises questions about who has access to what kind of care. Uh, and, you know, it, the list goes on. So that, you know, social policy um, around elder care is a huge issue. Um, I remember, actually, I've been doing a lot of talks about the book, and one was um, uh, was sponsored by a labor organization. And the whole conversation we had after I spoke was about the importance of, of labor organizing around elder care issues as well. And something that, you know, really needs to be tackled on a number of different uh, planes. So then at the end of uh, the book and towards the end of your father's life, actually, you hire a woman named Zora to provide caregiving that you were unable to give mostly because of the kind of 24-hour um, care that he needed towards the end. And so I was hoping that you could talk more sort of about the importance of Zora in your life and your father's life and sort of in this um, ecosystem that you had going around caregiving for your father. Sure. So just to kind of tie it to the the broader social policy issue. So assisted living care um, only goes so far. And, well, you know, there was a certain point when my father clearly needed um, more intensive monitoring and, 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 you know, even to the point where he, he needed somebody there pretty much all the time. Um, and Zora was, um, so, so just, sorry, back up, which is to say that, you know, had we not been financially able to hire somebody to provide that kind of care, he would have gone into a nursing home. Um, and that's what a lot of people do. 
Um, in, you know, let's just say in best case scenario, somebody goes from quality assisted living to quality nursing home. It still means that there is a, a dramatic, you know, kind of abrupt change in one's living environment at a very old age. And um, for a lot of people, that is pretty shocking to emotionally, physically, um, you know, but necessary. Um, and, well, in our case, we we were lucky enough to be able to afford to bring somebody in um, to be a, a 24, well, to have 24-hour paid care. And the, the person who spent the bulk of the time with our dad was Zora, as you mentioned. Um, the names, by the way, have all been changed to uh, you know, protect people. But, um, but Zora was somebody who had cared for one of my uncles many years back. And my father observed how loving and caring she was and said at some point, if I ever need that kind of care, I would love to have her. Um, well, when he needed that kind of care, she wasn't available. But, you know, as th these things go, um, you know, her work was taking care of people in this final chapter of their life. And, um, and the person that she was caring for passed away and she was then available. So we were quite lucky to be able to hire her. Um, she essentially, uh, moved in <laughs> with my dad into my dad's apartment when she was sleeping there. Um, so she'd either be there for days or nights, but we had, uh, we bought a couch. So, you know, op that opened up into a bed so that she or whomever, um, was with him could sleep if necessary. Um, and, you know, the job of a, a paid caregiver who's in this kind of role was, it's just interesting. I mean, she, she was incredibly, I don't know, she just knew how to be part of a family really quick. And she's somebody who, um, was charming and funny, but also incredibly, um, knowledgeable and sensitive to my father's personality and his needs. Um, and she, she used to call herself his protector. Um, and, you know, he ultimately, he died after a pretty bad or, or a fall, which is the number one reason that people end up in an institution and can also be kind of their demise. And her, she wasn't with him when he had that last fall, which she said was she would have caught him. Um, and, and I believe she probably would have, um, although he was very, very old. So I uh, had a lot of physical maladies. But, um, but you know, she in some ways felt like this sort of temporary family member. Um, she was also so wonderful at her job that people within the institution noticed and offered, she got offered a job to work there, but she uh, did not accept it because she felt that she had more flexibility and autonomy working as a private caregiver. Um, so she didn't choose to do that. Um, you know, she was somebody who came to my dad's funeral. We tried to help her find work after, um, uh, she no longer had a job with my dad. Um, you know, we stayed in touch with her for a while. Um, but you know, as these things go, she did not become a permanent member of our family, but you know, in that period of time, I would say about a year, um, she really did feel like a part of our family. So I really saw the the whole book as sort of presenting the, a human story behind this really important social issue of elder care that I think is increasingly important, obviously, with the aging population. So I was hoping here that you could wrap up the book for the listeners and any readers by presenting your final thoughts or sort of your big takeaways from your book. 
Well, a few things. I what I you know, as I said early on, um, I wrote the book initially because it was a way to deal with my own feeling of of loss. Um, my father and I had been extremely close. He was a complicated person and not an easy person, uh, but somebody who, as I got older, I was able to forgive for the things that I found annoying uh, and just kind of accept more or less. And I think my sister and I were buffers for each other for the things that were tough about his personality. He was kind of a narcissist and, you know, in, in, in making a choice to, um, you know, stand up to during the McCarthy era and, you know, continue, uh, you know, kind of following his, his political beliefs. It was something that, you know, I absolutely respected. And I think he made the right choices, but it was not without some sort of definite downsides. Um, so I, I think that, um, you know, in telling his story, you know, he was a strong, he was a very powerful person with a lot of opinions. Um, and somebody who loved me very dearly and deeply. And I, I think it was a gift that I gave to him, but it was also a gift to myself in a way to, um, to be able to give to him in this way, uh, to feel no regrets, to feel like I did as much as I could do. I didn't do everything. I mean, I didn't move him to Boston to live with me, um, but I knew that that wasn't going to be good for him or for me. Uh, to, you know, really uh, come through for him. And, you know, as you said, the word dignity was important, um, you know, is important, I think, for people as as they're leaving this world, that they can leave uh, having a sense of dignity and feeling loved. And that that's something that I was able to uh, bring to him. Um, I think, you know, the, the other thing that, that he gifted me with, in a way, was... Um, his social network um, that I eventually became a part of. So in some, in many ways I have uh, added more people to my life because of him, people who adored him, respected him, loved him um, and took me into their fold as part of, part of their world. And so, for example, when I was going out and doing book talks, um, I became part of a committee with a group of people in Buffalo, uh, people from his political world, from his theater world. Uh, and we organized a weekend of events that we called Freed and Freed. <laughs> and it was, um, it was really not, in this case, kind of a rehashing of all he'd done in his life, but it was really focused on the issue of caregiving. So we, um, so I did a book reading. We had a, an academic panel at University at Buffalo with folks who were experts on aging policy and, um, you know, talked about sort of the policy and research side of things. Um, we, um, somebody actually had written a play um, about my dad's experience being subpoenaed uh, to testify in front of House on American Activities Committee. And we did a, there was a, I, I would say not we, but there was a, there were a group of actors who did a, um, a, a one act from that. There was another play that was shown. And so, you know, just this process of um, collaborating with my dad's friends, not not just organizing to have them come visit him or whatever, you know, really uh, sort of strengthened my connection to them and to Buffalo, which was a place I thought I'd never return to. So I guess in the end, um, the most powerful lesson for me in a way was that the experience was personally transformative for me as well. And that, 
you know, that I was able to take care of him, that, um, usher to him to his, you know, his death essentially with, with dignity and feeling loved and surrounded by people who really loved him and cared for him dearly. So that was, um, you know, and, and in some ways, I guess writing a book, uh, about an experience, um, allows you to re re-examine that experience. Uh, there's some, there's this phrase that writers live life twice. And I think that that's true because, uh, you know, in, in telling a story, you have to reimagine what it felt like and you can't, you know, in writing it so that other people understand it, you, you really have to use your senses and use words to describe place and feel and smells and so on. And, and re kind of immersed myself into the experience that I had and that I was able to kind of come out of, um, feeling whole, feeling good. Uh, and, and now sort of continuing that and talking to people about issues of caregiving as I talk about the book has been incredibly gratifying. And, you know, just seeing that so many people, you know, here's this irony that there's almost 30% of our population um, are caregivers, uh, that is adults who are caregivers. And yet it's such a siloed experience that many of us just don't talk to one another. So that's sort of become my passion to to instigate a, a conversation about caregiving so that we don't feel alone with this experience. So today we've been talking to Mindy Freed about her book, Caring for Red. And so Mindy, I was hoping you could tell us what you're working on now. Um, sure. Um, well, I continue to do the work that I've always been doing, which is evaluating various programs. Um, so I you know, kind of keep my research uh, brain going. Um, but in relation to... Um, this material, this book, I'm still touring with the book. Um, I, if anybody out there is going to be in um, anywhere on the coast of California, um, you know, I've got uh, a bunch of, of book talks all up and down the coast. So if you just check out my uh, website, it's uh, www.mindyfried.com. That's M-I-N-D-Y-F-R-I-E-D.com. And you'll see that this stuff that you can join me with, that'd be lovely. But, um, you know, I'm also, in addition to talking with folks, I mean, I've, I've, I don't know, I've been all over the country talking about the book and I've now been thinking about um, starting a podcast uh, about caregiving uh, in, in which, you know, I sort of get beyond my story, but tell other people's stories and interview people about what they're experiencing and in, including some of the poignant and the funny and the difficult sides of caregiving. Great. That sounds like a really interesting project. Um, thanks again for joining us today. Oh yeah. My pleasure. Really good to talk to you, Sarah. Great. Thank you. 